One word, love. Don't get all excited. I can talk about this for a long time. One word, love. This week is Valentine's Day. Are you planning something special for Valentine's Day? Uh, I am. I told Kathy she doesn't have to cook. She can make extra Monday night. We'll have leftovers. I know. I'm an incurable romantic. Uh, Hey, um, we're going to read a few verses of Scripture from Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to look at some things that it says about love. We're going to spend a a few minutes looking at the verses and looking at what they say. And then we're going to end with some principles about love that we learn from this passage. This is not all inclusive. There are other passages in scripture. We're not going to be able to share every nifty thing that could help you in a relationship with someone else. And there just isn't time for that. Uh, But we're going to look at some of the things that the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul wrote in this book to this church. Now, remember, the reason why he wrote to Colossae was because of the ongoing tendency toward Gnosticism, toward an intellectualism, toward an earning of their salvation. And they were becoming divisive. They were looking down on others who weren't as good as they were at certain things. And they were lifting themselves up and putting others down. And, and, and there was this struggle going on in that community. And Paul's addressing that saying, listen, you need to lay those things aside. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, Barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. See, we live in a very divisive world. I honestly thought that uh, we had lived through the ugliness of racial prejudice when I was a kid. Uh, And uh, we had knifings in my high school because of race riots that were taking place. And you uh, you were encouraged to never use the bathroom alone. Uh, go in in two or three at least to protect yourself because it, I, I went to a violent high school. We had armed guards in the hallways and, and uh, lots of stress and turmoil. I thought we got beyond that, but we haven't. Some people in our culture still have the bias and prejudice they had before. We live in a world of loneliness. There's more people and more ways to connect, but fewer significant touches. We live in a world starved for love that is filled with people who have confused lust or self-indulgence for love. We're often blind to opportunities to love while we are all too skilled at remembering an offense against us. But Christ bridges every divide. I honestly can't remember where I got this, but I like what one writer said about verse 11. Racial or national distinctions are eliminated where there is neither Greek nor Jew. We're all one in Christ. Religious distinctions where there's circumcision nor uncircumcision. That religious act of circumcision, which was a religious act in its inception in the Old Testament as a sign of faith in Christ, in the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. 
where he laid aside cultural distinctions. Barbarians. What's a barbarian? They overthrew Rome, you should remember, from history. Uh, barbarians were just barbaric people, people who behaved in, in a rough way, an unkind way. Barbarians or Scythians. Well, what is that? Well, apparently, they were a race of people who, were, who made the barbarians look nice. They were wild and primitive, and they were viewed as beasts. Even the barbarians thought the Scythians were wild beasts. So there's no racial or national distinction, no religious distinction, no cultural distinction, no economic or social distinction, whether you're slave or free. The Bible never condones or encourages slavery. Never. The Bible encourages liberating slaves. A liberating people when we realize we're all one in Christ. Paul wrote the book of Philemon addressing that very subject. But there's no difference. We, we need to accept that Christ has laid aside all of these things. And then verse 12, he uh, continues the argument saying, put on therefore. So this is like... Uh, Earlier in the chapter, he said, put off these things. And he had a list of things that you need to avoid. And then another list. And now he's going to give us a list of things we need to put on. And it's not just a cosmetic changing of the outside. This is a, supposed to be a transformation, not merely external change, but evidence of an internal change that spills out into the outside of our body. I don't know if you've ever seen someone who was... Uh, uh, in the throes of alcoholism or drug addiction. And then they went through rehab. And then you meet them again and they have clear eyes and they can speak clearly. And it's such a transformation. They don't even look like the same person. And what a joy it is to see that. Uh, that's what he's talking about here. An outward transformation. I'm sorry, an outward change that's evidence of an inward transformation. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. Now, no one can claim to be chosen by God. I'm sorry. No one can claim to be chosen by God because of his or her heritage or good works. We are saved by God's good grace. So to have received such incredible grace from God, to be received by him and made part of his family, then it should move us to want to change ourselves so that we could please this one who's done so much for us. Now he gets into this positive list of things we should pursue, but first he, he gives an outline of the character we should have. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Holy speaks of purity. Uh, holy is the one set apart, sacred for God. Uh, some people have the mistaken idea that if you believe in Jesus, you can live any way you want and you'll still go to heaven. That, that is violating the grace of God. The Apostle Paul addressed that very subject in Romans. He said, should we then just continue in sin so that God's grace could abound? And then he said, no, God forbid, never do that. 
There should be a righteousness and a holiness about our behavior. The absolute ideal would be if somebody were trying to do an expose on you, they would find nothing. How many of you remember uh, uh, when Hart was running for president? Some of you have no idea who I'm talking about. Yeah, you younger folks. This is a history lesson. Gary Hart, was that his name? Uh, Gary Hart. And he said, he challenged the media. Check me out. Look over my life. You'll find nothing. Within two days, they had an expose on him. And he had a woman on the side and had some other things. And he was out of the presidency. <coughs> Nowadays, I guess it doesn't matter. But back then, it mattered. And he was out of the presidency. And if, if somebody were going to do an expose on you, the ideal thing is because you have so dedicated yourself to follow Christ, they could find nothing. At least nothing substantial. Nobody can be perfect 100% of the time, but they would find nothing substantial. No grotesque skeletons in your closet. Holy and beloved recognize that we are dearly loved by God. And then he then gives us a love for one another. Put on these things. What's the first thing? Bowels of mercies. What a weird thing. Tender mercies. Uh, compassions. Uh, bowels was just the center part of the body, so they described that as the center of the person. Now we talk about the heart, which is really kind of off-center and leaning toward the left, if, if you're healthy. Some people have it over here, but um, it's healthier to have it over here. And uh, it, compassion. What does compassion look like when you see somebody trip and fall and hurt themselves? Does it look like, <laughs> is that what it looks like? No, what does it look like? Run to help. Sometimes it's hard not to laugh. But if they get hurt, then you, it's easy not to laugh if they're seriously hurt. <laughs> I, I started to tell a family story, but I'll pass. Compassion. What's the second thing? Kindness. Kindness. Tender mercies. Kindness. Look at our world. How do the Democrats act toward the Republicans? How do the Republicans act toward the Democrats? How do the Libertarians act toward everybody? How, how do we interact with one another? There's hatred and anger and angst and meanness. According to Randy George, the only ones who have it right are the Constitutional Party. Is that right? <laughs> but listen, Christians are not supposed to be that way. Christian kid playing on a football team or a little league baseball team or something, and somebody else trash talks them. How should the Christian kid respond? <clears throat> Tender mercies. Kindness. We're so prone to trash talk. We're, we live in a trash talk culture. The news media is often trash talk. 
I, when they were, I, we never dreamed we would hear on the news what we heard on the news when, when uh, Clarence Thomas was being confirmed as a justice. The horrible things they said on the news as if it was newsworthy. Um, Christians aren't supposed to live that way. Kindness. You may not be the most talented kid on that baseball team or football team, but if you're a believer, you're supposed to be one of the nicest kids on that team. That's great if you can be both nice and really good. But nice is more important. What's the next thing? Humbleness of mind or humility. What does humility look like? In a church, they had this guy who was recognized as the most humble man in the church. He just served, he just gave, he served, and they wanted to recognize him, and so they, they gave him an award, a little pin, to recognize that he was the most humble man in the church. Then they took it away from him because he wore it. And by wearing it, it's drawing attention to him. He lost his humility. Humbleness. Humbleness does not mean you don't think about your needs ever. Humbleness means you recognize apart from Christ, you have no significant value. Your value comes from your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what draws us and connects us. And so some other person, they may not be as good as you are at something or other thing, but if if you are humble, have humility, they will feel okay in your presence. I've had the opportunity to sit down to a meal with millionaires and a billionaire and, and uh, public leaders, gov government officials and pastors who have thousands of people attending their churches. And the humble ones are so much fun to be around. And the arrogant ones are so not. <clears throat> And humility is what drew people to Jesus Christ. And it will draw people to Christ today through your life. Humility. Then what? Meekness, Meekness or gentleness, some translations have. A, a person who's gentle and mild. <laughs> this is not the, the, you know, the old lady who says, well, I just say what I think. <laughs> um, that's good if you're thinking well. If you're not thinking well, saying what you think is a bad thing. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ and Moses were described as meek. Were they weak? Absolutely not. Moses went in before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He stood in the face of, at the time, the mightiest king on earth and openly defied him. Jesus Christ took on all of the demons and everything Satan had to throw at him and walked confidently and surely and openly. Jesus Christ was the toughest man who ever lived. He was not weak, but he was meek. There was a gentleness to him. He didn't have to be harsh to show his manliness. And then patient or long-suffering. I love the word long-suffering. I realize it's an old word. We don't use it much in our 
culture today. But long-suffering just describes the way life is sometimes. You put up with it, you put up with it, you put up with it, and you put up with it over time. Long-suffering. Closely related that in verse 13. You put on forbearance. Uh, bearing one another, uh, enduring unpleasant or difficult circumstances on behalf of another person for a greater good. I remember when I went to boot camp, uh, there was a drill instructor who particularly did not like me. I'm not exactly sure why. I, I know why it ended up being that way, but I didn't know why, how it started. Um, and and he, he just was, some drill instructors, are, they're all try and be mean, Marine Corps drill instructors. They're not known for being nice and gentle and encouraging and nurturing, but, but he was particularly obnoxious. And, uh, and I, I kept reminding myself, boot camp is 13 weeks. It was actually 15 when I went in, but we got a shortened time so that we could get out before Christmas. We had 13 weeks, and we got out just a couple days before Christmas, which meant that we got an hour less sleep than most boot camps did, and we had classes after supper that most boot camps didn't have, uh, but we were able to graduate in 13 weeks. And, and I just kept reminding myself, I, I marked them down, man. <laughs> Nine weeks to go, eight weeks to go, and I kept reminding myself, you can put up, put up with anything for 13 weeks, for nine weeks. For eight more weeks. Forbearance. We can endure. Because we follow the one who endured everything for us. We can endure. And then forgiveness. Forgiveness even when you've been hurt by them. Forgiveness. Now, we, we have a weird idea of forgiveness in our culture. In Christian culture. That forgiveness means you never acknowledge the wrong. That's not what forgiveness is. Jesus held people accountable, like the woman at the, uh, not the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery who was brought before the Lord. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. There was a forgiveness there, but then he added, go and sin no more. Don't keep doing what you've been doing. Change your ways. And, and so forgiveness is forgiving the hurt that I have been caused and leaving it with the Lord because their standing with the Lord is what really counts. But if somebody stole from our church or even stole outside and they joined our church, would we ever want them to be a treasurer of the church if they were known to have stolen before? No, why not? Well, to protect them and to protect the ministry. Wait, I, I thought you Christians were supposed to be forgiving. We are. We forgive. We don't hold it against them, but it does limit how they serve in the same way that a, a man, there's qualifications to serve as a pastor or as a deacon. And if you don't meet the qualifications, you can never serve in those roles. Regardless of how much of your sin God forgives and how much does he forgive? All of it, if you ask him. No matter, he forgives it, but he still has standards within his church for the way things have to operate and work. And so you violate those standards, you're no longer qualified to serve in that way. So forgiving even when we've been hurt by them. Now, I like the way the New King James phrases this. Uh, at the end of this verse, he said, you must also do this. Forgiving, you must also do. Like Christ has done for you, you must forgive. 
the price has been paid. Uh, Kathy and I went to an event up in North Phoenix once, a group of pastors and wives, and, and uh, uh, one of the speakers said something I've never forgotten. He said, if you refuse to forgive someone else their sin against you, you're looking at the cross of Jesus and you're telling Christ what you did on the cross was not enough. They also owe me. I, wow, that was powerful for me. You can say, Jesus paid for that sin. I'm going to let it go. Now, it's not easy when somebody hurts you badly, and that does happen. Then you, you may have to forgive them 15 times a day, every day for years. That's okay. Just keep giving it to the Lord. Giving it to the Lord. Then in verse 14, he says, Above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Or as we uh, put it in the bulletin, above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. See, the scripture says that love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. Love is the great commandment. Love is one of the values of victory that we have as a church. Love is not merely cards and flowers or jewelry on Valentine's Day. Love is work from the inside out. So when we look at this passage, these couple of verses, and we, and we look at what we, what's said here about love, let me give you some principles that we can learn about love from these verses. Number one, love helps us overlook and overcome our natural or learned prejudices. I love that picture. Isn't that great? Love helps us overlook and overcome our natural or learned prejudices. I don't know how they got that picture, but kids are great actors. Some people look down on others because of the color of their skin, because their height, uh, because they do not read as well, or run as fast, or throw as far, or sing as well, or look as good. Some people look down on others uh, for all kinds of silly things. And the Bible says we're not supposed to look down on others. We're actually supposed to <clears throat> lift others up. Every person is unique. There's no two people exactly alike. I have known identical twins that were nothing alike in temperament and personality. They looked alike, but they didn't act alike. We actually had a friend here in town who has an identical twin. And we didn't realize that at first. And she was telling us a story of a friend called her on the phone one day and said, all right, we need to talk about this. And she's like, what? I, I don't think you should have left your husband. She said, what are you talking about? And, and she said, I saw you in the store the other day. Apparently her twin sister had been in town, had been in the store with her husband. And this lady came up and talked to her, and the twin sister acted like she was really the twin. So uh, let's say 
what, you know, Betty and Barbara. And, and the friend walked up to talk to Betty, and it was really Barbara, and Barbara acted like she was Betty. And she's holding the arm of this other guy. She said, oh, yeah, I left him. This is my new man. You know? and, and causing all this trouble. And the lady goes home, and finally she calls Betty. Betty, you get, what's going on? And that's when she found out her twin had been in town stirring things up. Looked the same on the outside. Not quite so nice on the inside. <laughs> I'm really glad I didn't have a twin. I caused enough trouble for me. I didn't need help. Every person is unique, even if they look exactly alike. Every person has a significant place in the heart of God. How many people does God want to go to hell? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It doesn't mean that no one will be in hell. There are people who teach that today. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that if you die without receiving of his Savior, you end up in hell. And he described a man who was actually in hell at the time. But love helps us overlook these natural or learned prejudices. Even people who have a different religion than you. You're not going to win somebody to Christ by yelling at them and arguing with them or beating them into submission. Why, during the Crusades, lots of people converted to Christianity. It was easier than getting their head lopped off. It wasn't conversion to Jesus Christ. It wasn't repentance and faith. Every person has a significant place in the heart of God. He loved them. He died for them. Every person deserves you to show them the love of God. It's easy with some. It's more difficult with others, but every person deserves that. So love helps you overlook those natural or learned prejudices that we have developed. Secondly, love helps us transform our thinking and our internal behavior. Verse 12, he says, be holy or righteous. We're told to have humility. We, we compare ourselves to Christ and we are humbled rather than comparing ourselves to other people or even to who we used to be. And we compare ourselves to him and we're humbled instead of becoming arrogant as we compare in other ways. Uh, Isaiah uh, 64, 6 says that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the eyes of God. The best that we can do on our own apart from Christ is disgusting in the eyes of God. We need his righteousness. So love helps us transform that thinking and, uh, and internal behavior so that we can listen without judging and without being defensive. That's hard. It's hard to listen without being defensive. But we can do that. Love keeps you moving in the right direction regardless of what other people are doing or saying because you're transforming your thinking and your internal behavior. I have no idea how many times in my life I've had to go back to somebody and apologize because when we first talked about something, I was defensive. 
And then I had to go back. I thought about it some more, realized there's some truth there, some things I need to deal with, go back and talk to the person. You're not going to be perfect all the time. But you can correct yourself back to God's standard continually. Love helps us transform our thinking, transform our inner behavior. Because your behavior starts on the inside and then spills over to the outside. Thirdly, love helps us be more patient and understanding even when we're tired and lonely and even when others irritate and annoy us. How many of you have had in your life somebody who was around a lot and annoyed you? How many of you are sitting next to them? No, don't, don't, don't answer that. Some people are fun to be around. Some people are not. Well, verse 12 talks about showing compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience. Verse 13, forgiveness. Even when we're tired and lonely and feeling a little grumpy, even when others irritate and annoy us, love helps us be more patient. If you love them. You know, I have laughed over the years. I have known so many guys who are rude to their wives. But they weren't rude to their girlfriends. When they were engaged, they were kindness and patience. And Kathy had a friend who told her um, her husband wanted to go everywhere. Or her fiancé. They went here and there and everywhere. And they got married and he wanted to just stay home. And she said, but, but we used to do all that. And he said, well, that's when I was trying to win you. Now I got you. I want to stay home. And, and she lost all this fun social interaction with other people that she really loved and enjoyed. It was over. Uh, and even if somebody's annoying you and irritating you and you're feeling lonely, I should have added hungry. <laughs> even when you're hungry, love helps you be more patient and more understanding. In our values of victory, we have, we love others as Christ does. Even when they are different or disagree with us, we choose to love them. In Christ, it is Christ's love which drives our outreach and missions. This is Discipleship Outreach Week. When you walk out this door, you're a missionary to serve Jesus Christ. Look for somebody you can show his love to, uh, share his truth with, Help bring them to the Lord. Love is an essential part of every strong relationship. Number four, love helps us endure difficult circumstances or relationships without becoming cynical or bitter. Uh, verse 12 talks about long suffering. Verse 13 about forbearance. I've used this picture before. The boy's smiling. You can see the smile. You know where he lives? That's his home. A trash heap in Mozambique. That's the only home he knows. And love helps us endure the difficult circumstances without becoming cynical or bitter. I cannot go back because of health problems that I have now, but 
for many years, I had the opportunity to go to Cuba on mission trips and minister there and preach there and meet people there. And twice, Kathy got to go with me. And the thing that stood out to us was the joy in the Cuban people. The joy they had being so grateful for their blessings. And the nicest house we were ever in in Cuba was nowhere near as nice as our house here. And we have a modest home. But they were joyful about what they had. American Christians could learn a lot from Cuban Christians. We have so much. And yes, we have some difficult times and difficulties. And I, I've known people who they got so mad at God and because the difficulty they were going through, they just walked away from him, at least temporarily. You know what's really sad? One of the guys I know who did that was me. When our first baby died, I was angry with God. And I didn't talk to him for two weeks. And then I finally felt guilty, confessed my sin, started drawing to closer to him. I'm still not happy that it happened. But God helped grow me through that and help me through that. He used the horrible circumstances to do something good in my life. I wish it could have been less painful, but he's in charge of that, not me. I'm not in charge of the circumstances of my life, but I'm in charge of my attitude about my life. And love helps you endure difficult circumstances and difficult relationships without becoming cynical or bitter. Love. We started out looking at one word, love. Love, as somebody said, it's what makes the world go round. Love brought Jesus Christ from heaven to earth. Love took Jesus Christ to the cross for us. Love burst forth from the tomb. And love welcomes us home when we trust and receive Christ. And love encourages us on our way. Without love, we're a clanging symbol. But with love, we are walking with Lord, with the Lord in the light of the living. Are you a loving person? If, if you were to interview the people closest to you, would they say you're more grumpy than loving? Or would they say that person's growing in their love? And when you grow in your love toward the Lord... It encourages you in your love toward others. It spills out. And when you really love God, you're willing to pay a price to minister in his name among people who desperately need to know him. We're going to sing a song about that. Here I am, Lord. And this song talks about your need to step up, show love, serve and minister because we live in a broken world among people with broken hearts. And we have the answer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to share it with them. Let's stand as we sing.